0: So as you guys flipped open to Matthew chapter 21, we're still going through parables. So this is our third week in parables. Anyone know the first two parables that we hit or the ideas? Well, okay. (laughs) Yes, bing, bing, in in backwards order. But yeah, so we hit the the, uh, parable of the soils, which Nick did the first week. And that was also helpful as an introduction for you guys as far as what parables are, what they do, how they function. And then Manny hit on a few parables last week, and the idea was they're about the kingdom and ultimately that this kingdom is going to grow and uh, we're kind of we're not pivoting so much from parables as we are um, those two veins in the parables and hitting another one that Jesus often hits and um, I'll be honest with you uh, as I was Putting this together this week, I was very, very torn apart, not because I had any particular love for a a certain parable, but sometimes when you're given too many good choices in life, it is hard to choose, right? If you put chocolate with Reese's in front of me or chocolate with Oreo in front of me, I'm going to have a very difficult decision. Uh, So as I was looking uh, through a couple this week, I was preparing two. And I ended up honestly just choosing this one, but I'll tell you what, church, um, in all seriousness, this is is not a rally the troops sermon like Manny's was, and praise the God for last week's sermon. This will be a solemn and somber reminder to us um, of another part of Jesus' kingdom, and that's Jesus as king will vindicate his name. And that means he will judge. And he will judge perfectly and fully and righteously. And as we think about just even our own situation of pleading with somebody who has renounced faith in Jesus Christ, there is no greater thing we could read in the parables than this today. But I want you to want, want that to sit in for you. This is gonna be a very somber, very sobering reality. Understand, and I'm just going to give you the title right up front before we jump into it because while that truth will come out at the end, and as far as our application goes, um, we're not going to be able to understand that application unless we we begin this set of parables that will be in rightly from the beginning. So Brethren, the the main thrust literally of the entire chapter of 21, it could actually be said of 21 all the way through chapter 25 of Matthew is this. It is Christ's final plea to Jerusalem. It's going to be Christ's final plea to Jerusalem, the people of his day, to whom the gospel of the kingdom came first. And these three parables that we're going to hit in Matthew 21 are going to be parables of imminent judgment. And now you could probably think of why that would fit so well with what we have going on in our own midst. And I just want you to consider that along with your own life as you hear what Jesus has to say to the people of his day and still says to us today. So I want to draw that out for you. So... Here's how I think Matthew 21 is functioning as a chapter in these parables. So if you look in Matthew chapter 21, the parables actually don't start till halfway through the chapter. It's not until 28 verses in that you get Jesus' first parable. uh, and, And then he goes from there. So in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in 28, Jesus begins with a parable of two sons. And then he builds on this. He then gives a parable of tenants and then he ends with a parable in chapter 22 of the wedding feast before you start getting a discourse on other teaching of jesus kind of pulling away from these parables Uh, but jesus doesn't get to these parables by accident and as you have seen in the last couple of ones that we've done, Jesus never tells a parable in um, obscurity, and He doesn't do it without making some kind of connection to the broader setting of Scripture and also to His own life and His ministry. And so I want to be able to walk through that for you. So we got a couple of things that we have to do before we get to the parables. Because, listen, church, you could read these parables, and for the most part, they're not. these parables are not tricky. There are some tricky ones. Uh, No doubt, there are some parables that take some very slow time to work through, to understand. But Matthew 21, those parables, I think, are some of the most cut and dry parables. If I read them to you, we could be out of here in 15 minutes. We won't be. But we could be out of here in 15, (laughs) hour and 15. But we could be out of here really quick. But I think if we do that, you'll just totally, you'll, you'll miss you'll miss the force that it would have had to Jesus' own generation and therefore miss its implication and its force to you. If, if we don't understand what it would have meant for Jesus' hearers to hear these parables and understand the, the judgment that was coming upon Jerusalem, then it really isn't going to really make too much of an impact upon us because if it didn't mean much for them, brethren, you need to ask yourself the question, can it even then mean anything for you? If Jesus's words to the people of his day were met with a, 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 a deafness, a, a no understanding for them in their own time, then what on earth would it possibly have to do with you if it had nothing to do with them? And you ought to consider that. If it didn't mean something for them, it does not mean something for you. So, I want to build this out in a couple ways. So, before we get to the parables, that'll be the second half of this sermon. The first half, we need to do a little bit of uh, uh, legwork here, is, is going to be this, is that's going to be setting the background. So, I've, I've, I've broken this up into three sections, with the last section being the actual parables, but here's how we're going to do this. We're going to begin in Matthew 21, right at the start, and we're going to see that there is an escalating background to when we get to these parables. There is tension building that you should feel. Some, some very serious tension that if it would be like walking into a room full of fireworks and flammable you know, liquid and lighting a match kind of tension. Like, you don't do that. Uh, so you need to feel that there is a background to Jesus' parables. When he brings these parables in, he is doing so very, very meticulously. Jesus Christ is not a, a storyteller like on television, just telling nice stories to a bunch of kids to get them to laugh and to chuckle. Jesus is coming in as, a, as, a, uh, as the Son of God or as the Son of Man, and He is telling these parables to get a reaction. He's doing it purposefully. He's doing it on purpose. And so we need to see that as He starts Before he even gets to these parables, Jesus's actions speak just as loud as his parables here. And they set the tension for his parables. So you're going to have this escalating background. And then you're going to have this escalating stage upon which he gives the parables that comes before it as well. So not only will there be background information, but we're going to have the stage set for the parables by a couple of things. And we heard this read in the New Testament reading. If you guys were paying attention... We read just a few verses back when Jesus gives uh, or Jesus curses the fig tree. And that is the setting of the stage for what Jesus is about to do. That is the picture you are to have in mind as he begins to tell these parables. And then you are to hear the people that challenge him. After he gives that cursing of the fig tree, you're to hear the people who challenge Jesus' authority because that is what prompts Jesus' parables. He doesn't just come in and tell them to his disciples. He is provoked as God's son and his authority is a challenge to come in and do what he does and say what he does. And then he gives the parables to make his point. You want to challenge my authority? Then here you go. So we have our escalating background escalating stage and then we will get to the escalating parables and I will make more mention of this but um, I didn't even think about this to be honest with you until this morning I decided to do the last parable this morning because I was so convinced that they go together but when you get to the last one even the parables themselves build in their own tension when you get to the end of each parable the ending is much worse in each parable it builds Brethren, the point is, as the background escalates, as the stage becomes just met with friction and tension, Jesus gives these parables, and then the last one hits, and it's as if to set off an explosion of something to be met, and I want to show you that as we get through these. So, let's start with our background. Let me, let me kind of show you how this is leading up in, in, in Matthew chapter 21 here as far as the background goes. So if you want to look at Matthew chapter 21, uh, beginning in verse 1, I'm not going to read every single verse. I'm just going to walk through a little bit of it. And uh, we're going to um, just kind of jump here and there to kind of build this uh, background. So what you get here in verse 1 is this. Look at, look at this with me. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, this is speaking of Jesus and the, and the disciples, and came to Bethage to the Mount of Olives, the foil of a beast of burden. So this is the setting that you're getting. Where are they drawing near to in this setting? They're drawing near to Jerusalem. That is vital to get right at the outset. He is coming upon Jerusalem. And Matthew has built throughout the entirety of his gospel tension with who? Jerusalem and the Jews, specifically with the leaders of the Jews, the, 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 the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders. Tension has been built throughout Matthew's entire gospel. I mean, you think right at the beginning, John the Baptist comes in on the scene and he begins proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and be baptized. And who's he met with? The Jews, the Pharisees, opposition. And then Jesus comes and he comes under John's baptism, what? To fulfill all righteousness. And immediately they begin plotting against him too. And so this tension builds in Matthew. These parables, as Nick made mention the first week, these parables were given for two reasons. One was to reveal to those who were Christ, but the other was to conceal to those
1: who hated Christ. And who were those? the Jews. So as this continues to build, 21
0: has all of the, it's like a spring being pulled back. The tension is just like, the more you pull it back, the more you're just, when this thing releases, it's going to be ugly. There is an incredible amount of tension here, and Jesus is making his final descent upon Jerusalem. Because throughout Jesus' entire ministry, he's made multiple trips to Jerusalem. Now in Matthew, we think there's only two, but as you read John, uh, it it seems Jesus went up to Jerusalem during all the festivals, right? So you have Passover, you have the the, the Feast of Booze or or Tabernacles like Pentecost. So you have all these different festivals where Jesus would come up to all the time. So Jesus has made multiple trips in his ministry up to Jerusalem. And this, my friends, is his final time. They are drawing near here to Jerusalem, which is nothing less than God's city, God's mountain. Like we read in our Old Testament reading for Isaiah 5, this is God's vineyard, his holy hill, his mountain where he dwells, where his name should be honored, and Christ is coming to it one last time. Because what does Christ find when he comes to Jerusalem, his first visit, what does he find in there? Money changers, people extorting the Gentiles. They are filling these outer courts that was made for Gentiles to come in to pray and the Gentiles are being excluded and in theft, and extortion, all these different things are going on within God's house and what does he do? He comes and he starts flipping their tables. He starts cleansing the temple, and he starts making pronouncements against them. And what is the passage that he quotes? He says, zeal for my house has consumed me. This time, this is the final time that Jesus is coming back. And what should Jesus find now? What was the point of Jesus's righteous anger? It was to beckon repentance from the people. You have turned God's house from a house of prayer into a den of thieves and robbers. And so he holds out hope throughout Matthew for his people. But as he returns here, as now Jesus is drawing nearer and nearer and nearer to Jerusalem, he comes upon it and look at how he's entering. Think about this. Think about this imagery. Jesus is coming up now. And if you were confused as to, well, Jesus coming in on a donkey, I'm really unsure why he's doing that. Matthew explains it for you, right? It was in fulfillment of a prophecy, a prophecy of a heralding and coming king to God's holy city. He's coming unto them to be welcomed. But this king also ought to find God's temple is not being defiled, that it is not being filled. With sin. This king is not coming to a kingdom that is lax on God's rule and God's reign. He ought to come to a kingdom where his people are worshiping rightly. And this is what Jesus is said about him as he starts to enter in. This is confirmed for us. This is who he is. Listen to verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So you get confirmation. Listen, these people were not doing... (laughs) The people didn't just break out into this... uh, Th- this praise and this worship for no reason. They see the imagery of Jesus coming in, and they go, "What? That's 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 what we read about in the Old Testament. The King is coming in, and He's coming in to establish His kingdom. Here He comes. He's coming in, and they're giving Him praise and they're giving Him worship. But notice that the question comes because listen, we think the question like some people were walking around Jerusalem going, "Well, I don't know who's this." Uh, who's this guy coming in on a donkey? Listen, friends, listen. They knew their Old Testament so well. This question is not posed here to th- make you think that they were unawares of who Jesus Christ was. The question is posed to challenge who Jesus Christ was. It's the difference between saying, hey, I wonder who that is. Like I just saw someone new walk through the church to seeing the person you know and going, who's that? You know that difference. So when they say, who is this? They know exactly what Jesus, Jesus asked for this to happen. And these people are going, who is this? Now notice, this isn't all the people. Some of them acknowledge rightly. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. But even their own designation of him does not do justice. Who comes riding in on the donkey? The prophet or the king? It's the king. So this should should tell you that even in this triumphal entry, the king is coming in, brethren. He's riding on the donkey, not as one who is trying to come in and act like a poor peasant king. You know what the riding in on the donkey meant for people back then? It wasn't Jesus just simply being this shallow and low and soft king. When a king rode in on a donkey, it was a king identifying with his people. It was an act of humility, but no doubt the people owed allegiance to that king and praise to that king because he was identifying with him. But now when the people ask, who's this? What are they doing? They are disassociating themselves from that king. Do you I mean, do you understand that? This king comes in humble. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to come in and humble himself and identify with his people. And he does, and the people have the Audacity to say, who's this? And the best answer we get is, oh, that's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Which, if you were a Jew in Jerusalem at that day,
1: would have lit you up. A Galilean as the prophet and the king? That was unheard of.
0: That was an offense. That would have been for them. A disruption of their own power and of their own authority. And friends, it is evident in that question and what follows that though this is titled in your Bible, the triumphal entry, how triumphal is it? Not very. There is tension here. The king's coming in and though he has met with some praise, he is also being met with opposition. And it continues to grow. So there's the first part of this background. Here's the second here, verse 12. Look with me here. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So what does Jesus find for us one last time? There are thieves in God's temple.
1: There is uncleanness in God's temple. There are
0: sinners parading around in God's temple. And Jesus has made the declaration against them. And notice what he does in 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the
1: son of David, they were indignant. They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? It's like, Jesus, are you stupid?
0: Do you hear what they're saying? Because to the average person, It should make them say, stop, right? Don't say that about me.
1: But notice what Jesus quotes. Notice what he says. I love this. This is Jesus just being pithy. Yes. (laughs) Jesus, you hear what they're saying about you, man? What are you going to do about that? Yes.
0: (laughs) He says, yes. Have you, (laughs) just digs in deeper. Have you never read, of course, what he's about to quote? They've read a million times. And he's pushing it right back at them. Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And what is the idea? The lowly brethren. The lowly whom the temple should have been a place of refuge and a place of prayer had now turned into a place of sin and, and, and debauchery and of vile things being done in God's temple. And it is only when Jesus comes in to cleanse it that the blind and the
1: lame can come and now be healed. But notice verse 17. This is key. And
0: this, this is where it, this is this is where it, it, it This tension builds even stronger, and leaving them, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Brethren, that phrase in the Old Testament of the Bible, written in Greek in the Old Testament, is the same phrase for when God's spirit left the temple. It is the same phrase for when. The exile occurred, and God left the temple, and His glory departed. And it is the same phrase that you read about in Ezekiel, as God leaves the temple, and a new one is awaited in Ezekiel. Friends, Jesus Christ came to His temple and saw nothing but sin and wretchedness, and He left. This is the beginning and the sign of this escalating background. Brethren, judgment is on the horizon for this people. Judgment is on the horizon for Jerusalem. And now here's the stage. Here's how we know this, right? There are the stages set for, okay, there's the background. Now you kind of understand, like, you're getting, you're like, ooh, okay, this isn't a part of Matthew where I just get to come in and be cozy. This should make you very uncomfortable. And now Jesus is going to set the stage for his parables given that background. And so look at verse 18 here. And this is the one that we read in the morning. As he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea. It will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, brethren, if, and I understand, listen, that this is a weird transition. If you were just, and listen, this happens to all of us. I remember picking up my Bible as a new Christian, reading this and go, what on earth is the fig tree doing here? Like it's tension, fig tree, and then more tension, right? It's like putting jelly in a donut. You don't do that, right? It's just, it's not, it's not a natural place for this. It's just not natural for this thing to seem to be in here. But I want you to consider, what if I told you, I mean, I've harped on this so many times, and I will continue to do this. What does the Bible try to draw out of you that you don't have in your Western context? Imagery. Word pictures. We think analytically, logically, which is great, do those things, but word pictures. He has just left the temple, brethren, for the last time. He's pronounced a judgment on it. He has left it. And now as he's actually returning to it, he's returning to it and he sees a fig tree, by the way. But notice where he's at. So in 17, when he lodged, he went out to the city of Bethany. And then we read that, as he was going along the way that he saw this fig tree. Now the question becomes as to what location where Jesus was when he did this. And we must not think that at the end of 17, his lodging is just like, eh, Matthew just decided to tack it on, why not? Why the heck not? It's a nice little detail just to throw at the end, right? Locations in scripture are always important. Brethren, the the, the city to Bethany and where he lodged here you know where it sits? It sits on the Mount of Olives. That's where it sits. It sits on the Mount of Olives, and from the Mount of Olives, you could see straight across Jerusalem, sitting upon a hill. You could see it clear as day. It was it was a it was a straight sight uh, a a a, sight, a a line of sight right there to see Jerusalem, and. So in the morning, as he's returning to the city, he's, he became hungry, and along this way, we have this idea that Jesus is here in this location still, where he camped and where he lodged. As he's making his way back, where would he most naturally find a fig tree? It would be along the Mount of Olives and not in the desert during his travel. And so as Jesus is doing this, brethren, this is not a random act. This is not Jesus waking up in the morning and he's hungry and just mad at the world. Right? This is not Jesus having a fit. Jesus is going along the way, and he's using an image and a word picture for you to understand what he just did by his actions and what he's about to pronounce with his words. And that's this. He looks at the fig tree, and what does he see? Nothing. He looks at the fig tree, and it says, He found nothing on it, but only leaves. It appeared to have leaves on it. It's been growing. It's been sprouting. It, it, it has been performing its function as a fig tree, but the fig tree had no fruit. If you plant an apple tree and don't get apples, what is the point of your apple tree? Cut that thing down. You want to blow leaves all winter? Cut it down but when you plant something you expect a return from it you make a vineyard like god did in isaiah and you expect it to reap a reward and jesus looks at the fig tree and he sees nothing on it to be had and so what does he do there is no fruit being produced by this fig tree when it was supposed to bear fruit for him and so he curses it and so when the disciples ask him this question It seems like a very generic answer until you get to what he says. He says, have faith and do not doubt. Not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, brethren, what mountain in scripture would the disciples been able to see as they were standing on the Mount of Olives? Jerusalem. It's a city sitting upon a hill. It's God's holy mountain. It is God's holy city. And so he says, even you'll be able to, not only to the fig tree to curse it, but brethren, you'll be able to look to this mountain and call on God to
1: judge it. Brethren, to judge Jerusalem with the guarantee that whatever you ask in prayer,
0: you will receive what if you have faith. And now Jesus is going to set the, the groundwork now for their faith, but first is we have the 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 this this stage of this prophetic cursing being established by the response that it now uh, is invoked by the people that he returns to. So look at verse twenty-three there in twenty-one. It says and when he entered the temple. All right, so now Jesus is back. He is back. But notice he is, he is not going to engage like he has before. It says, The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what
1: authority I do these things. The baptism of John... Where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven,
0: he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, Jesus is not the always speaking crass to people. Jesus often speaks graciously to people, right, in the Gospels. What you do with the woman at the well? Graciously speaks to her and then says, go and sin no more. And you see that over and over and over again. But with an obstinate people who will not recognize clearly what they did recognize and they buried their head in the sand, Jesus Christ has nothing else to tell them. He will not play and stoop down to their games any longer. And so he answers them with a question back. You tell me, by what authority John did his ministry? And they can't answer him, brethren. And he does this on purpose to entrap them. Because they knew as well that John was the forerunner. He was Elijah who was to come to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And so they know that if they say from heaven, their their response would be charged to them, why didn't you believe in him? Because what did John tell them? He said, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree Therefore, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's the fruit again, right? See that at the beginning, and now it's coming back to them, no fruit. So they know if they answer to him
1: from heaven, then he's going to go, why didn't you believe? But if they say for man, then they know for a fact that the crowd will go in uproar because the people know The people know. And the assumption is they know.
0: When you get this expansion to a crowd, it is to say inclusive
1: of all the people, all of the Jews. They knew. So Jesus answered them, Neither will I tell you. Jesus is done, brethren. He is done. What a scary thing to hear from the Lord of glory. Brethren, people will say and ask questions
0: and ask for signs and ask for their life to get better till they are blue in the face. But if they will not listen to Jesus' words and Jesus' warnings, then Jesus will not stoop down to them to justify himself to them.
1: Brethren, he won't do it. You do not come unto a king that way. Jesus Christ tells them, I will not tell you by what
0: authority I do these things. So what does he tell them? He does speak. It's not he just, oh, I'm going to play the silent game with you. You know, I'm just ignore you. Jesus opens his mouth to them. And here's where we get our, our main stage here. So we have the background set, the is set. Here are the three unfolding acts in these parables. And we'll be able to make our way through these parables pretty quickly because these parables... Uh, though they have some detail in them, are pretty straightforward. But here now is what Jesus Christ does tell them. Here's what he tells them. And this is the final plea coming to them, brethren. This is it. There is nothing else to be had out of here. This is not a a word of encouragement. This is not a plea for hope. This is a, a word of warning. And this is the last plea. For Jerusalem to listen and repent and obey. So here's the first parable. Parable of the two sons. Look right there, verse 28.
1: Listen to what he says. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work
0: in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered,
1: I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And
0: Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him.
1: And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe in him. Brethren, not a lot of detail there, right? You don't need it. There's two sons. And he's drawing on one hears and doesn't immediately respond, but he
0: ends up doing what is told of him to do. The other one responds with words, but then does not do what? Follow up with action. No fruit. No fruit. And so he tells them, What's the point of this parable? Okay, because we don't want to, like Nick had pointed out before, we don't want to dig into sun and vineyard and this and that and get so lost in every single word that we miss what he says. So he he asked the question, which one of these did the will of his father? Which one? And they know, well, the first one, because even though he he said he wouldn't go, he actually went and, and did his father's will. He actually went out and did the work. And so he says this, here is Jesus's conclusion. He says, truly, I say, and he, who's he talking to? To you. He's talking to the people who are, are charging against him, who have challenged his authority. And he says, truly, I say to you, people who religious authorities who were seen highly, brethren, who would have been on the face of it, the exemplar of religious godly, God-fearing people, and he says, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes
1: will go into the kingdom of God before you. I don't think we understand what he's saying.
0: A tax collector among the Jews was as good as a Gentile, which means you were as good as dead. brother. to make it even worse, In a society dominated by male headship and male authority, he
1: then tells them to derive them even more. Even prostitutes go in before you. Brethren, if I took
0: you down, Sahara, and we went up and down from Maryland to Eastern, maybe up to Las Vegas Boulevard, and I pointed out to you that those women on the streets and on the corners who get picked up and dropped off are going into the kingdom before you, That should light you up. Because you should be, why would he say that? They're selling themselves to people. And brethren, it's because this, he's saying even these tax collectors and what you look at and consider these filthy prostitutes, though the word came to them and at first they did not obey, what did they do? They heard John, and they were baptized, and they repented. They bore fruit. The fruit came. Though they be lowly, though being a tax collector, you were a thief in that day, and though being a prostitute is a vile and disgusting thing, Jesus Christ says they will enter in the kingdom
1: before you because they did the will of the Father. And he condemns them. For John came to you in the way of righteousness,
0: and you did not believe him. And here's what they did. Here's, what, here's where I'm getting this from. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Well, what did they believe? They believed unto repentance, brethren. He said, repent and be baptized and then bear fruit in keeping with it. And he is saying in shorthand, these tax collectors and these prostitutes recognized rightly who was coming and they repented and they bore fruit in keeping with that repentance. And listen, and even when, who is he talking to again? You, think of the force of this, brethren. If Jesus Christ were talking to you and you were his audience in this day, and he tells you, even when you saw it, did not afterward change your minds and believe in him? Brethren, what kind of foolishness What kind of charge to be laid at your feet that you saw the the forerunner to the kingdom proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and tax collectors and prostitutes beat you to the punch. And even when you saw the fruit born from John the Baptist, they still did not afterward
1: change and believe. He's going to build on this. Second parable, parable of the tenants.
0: There is no chapter division or verse division here, so just remember this. Jesus is continuing to go. He's, a, he's hit 60 really quick and he's going to stay there. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come." Let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons.
1: And Jesus said to them,
0: And when it falls on anyone,
1: it'll crush him. Brethren, he intensifies this tenfold in this one here. Not
0: only does he condemn them with the parable of the two sons, that when they saw John the Baptist and the fruit being born and tax collectors and prostitutes, they did not change. He now draws and lays the charge on them even heavier lays it on them with full weight. Because what is this one? What, what is the, the, the basics of this parable? There's a master who plants a vineyard. And where did we hear about that vineyard in Scripture? We did the Old Testament reading. Isaiah 5. And in Isaiah, the vineyard is a reference to God's Old Testament people. It is used to refer to God's dwelling place, the place He establishes for His people. So this master comes and plants a vineyard. And he puts a you know fence around it, and he builds it out to be one in which these tenants can come in, and they can produce, uh, they can produce and yield fruit. They it, they could be successful in doing this. All these things have been giving. It's not like he just gave them a plot of land. He gives them a vineyard. He he builds protection around it. He digs a wine press in it. He builds a tower. He leases it. Then he goes off. But when the season thirty four, notice that. But when the season for fruit drew near, where did we hear about Jesus looking for fruit? That fig tree. Jesus is now, he's coming in to look for this fruit, brethren. He has just left that temple for the last time. He has departed. And now he's coming in and he's looking for the fruit and he finds nothing. And what happens here when this season comes around in this parable? When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruits. And what do they do? in response. Right? Cuz think about this. If you the background for this, if you know anything about uh, the, this, this New Testament Old Testament background in here, when somebody would lease land to somebody like this a vineyard, that was a five, 4 to 5 year venture. They were it was like they they were they were putting in money for a gain in the future. This was a long-term investment. You didn't just plant a vineyard and 3 months you got, you know, a bountiful crop and then you're making all this money. It's going to take time. And so the one who leases it out is going to expect a return on his money. He's waited four to five long years. So when we hear about him sending servants, think about this, brother. Imagine you drop a large amount of money, and then you send somebody on your behalf to go
1: collecting, and there's nothing to collect. But in fact, not only is there nothing to collect, But the ones you leased it out to, take your servants and beat them and kill them and stone them. And then you send more servants
0: and they do the same to them. And then we get to this phrase here, finally he sent his son. This is very obvious at this place. We don't need to parse this out in great detail. Who is he referring to in this parable by allegory? Jesus Christ. Because who are these servants of this master who's leased out this vineyard to the Old Testament people? This is God. And who does God send throughout the entirety of the Old Testament? Sends the prophets. And what are the prophets always beckoning Israel to do? Repent.
1: Bear the fruit of your repentance unto God. Because God will be owed. Israel was supposed to
0: perform a function. They were supposed to have a duty of being a light to the nations. And instead, there is no fruit to be found. And they take these servants and they kill them. And then
1: here comes his son. And this owner thinks, but they're going to respect my son. But when they see him, they know exactly who he is. This is the heir. Kill him. So they take him out, and they kill him outside of the vineyard. So, brethren, when he asks the question, therefore
0: the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do? Brethren, this is not simply just a rejection anymore of the fruit being produced by the lowly, sinful, uh, tax collectors and prostitutes anymore. Now the charge is coming directly to their doorstep. They have not just simply ignored the fruit out of John the Baptist ministry. Now the question is asking them, what do you think is going to become of those tenants when that owner comes back? And brethren, this is how blinding rejecting Jesus Christ is. This is how blinding it is. Notice how they answer. It's like they don't even see it. Because who answers like this? If I knew that was me, I'd be like, well, I hope he has mercy. Like you think you would answer the question to that if you saw yourself in it and you would say something that would get you off the hook a little bit. And they go full bore on this and go, he's going to put those wretches to a miserable death. Listen, the adjective, a miserable death. Brother, I would not want to answer like that. They are condemning themselves because the vineyard leased out to these tenants did not bear fruit at the proper time. And so he's going to put them out to a miserable death, and he will lease it to those who will bear the fruit. And then Jesus does so. So listen, we understand who the parable is about, but if you just read that and you didn't have the rest of your Bible... You'd be hanging on the edge of your seat. Like you just, okay, what's the conclusion? Where's this going? You just don't know. And so he quotes a scripture here for you so that you would understand what is happening. And he quotes, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. No doubt that Jesus is referring to himself. As this cornerstone, as the rest of scripture continues to do, as Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Christ being the chief cornerstone, and the rest of God's dwelling place of his temple built on him with, you know, the apostles and the prophets and, and teachers and pastors and all these different things. And so, no doubt, Jesus Christ is identifying to them the
1: reason for their stumbling. It's because Christ has become. The cornerstone.
0: He has become the means by which God's people and therefore God's new house and God's new temple will be held together. This cornerstone is not what, this is what I thought to be honest with you, I'm like oh it's like in the corner and it's got something to do with the foundation, I'm not the handyman around here if you know that. But if you if you understand what the corner the, the cornerstone it's you could translate it headstone okay well where's your head it's not down here hopefully your your head's up here so the cornerstone would be the stone that actually brings the two walls together in a structure to stabilize it and if you remove the cornerstone what comes crashing down the walls it's coming down so notice he's explaining to them. Why they have rejected him, it's because he is the cornerstone. Brethren, he is it. He is the son in the parable who has come from this master of the house, and they are rejecting him. And it's like he is, he is doing something you know prophetic by telling them, you're gonna kill him. Right. He's establishing his authority to them from when they asked him originally. But he's doing so in a way to, the, to condemn them. Because notice then in 43 what the conclusion is. And here is a level, this is a building of the indictment. It's not just that they rejected the fruit out of John the Baptist. Now, the kingdom of God itself is going to be taken away from them. It's going to be taken away from them, and it's going to be given to a people who will produce what? It's fruits, brethren. To produce the fruits of repentance. And what is the first fruit of repentance? Recognizing Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. If you reject Him, if you challenge His authority, if his cleansing of the temple and cursing of the fig tree and his triumphal entry makes you ask the question, who's this? Brethren, it will be to your demise because the kingdom of God has been taken away from those and given to people who repent and recognize who Jesus Christ is. And he's telling these people here, I tell you. The people whom these promises were given, the people whom awaited thousands of years,
1: brethren, the ones in whom he says, have you never read? Of course they had read. Brethren, it's being taken away from them in a moment.
0: What they thought was theirs by some divine right or inheritance because being a Jew is now being totally stripped from them. It doesn't matter. Brethren, to be a Jew does not matter. If you do not bear the fruit of repentance, and the first fruit
1: is that you submit to Jesus Christ, brethren, you have no part in God's kingdom. And instead of being the chief cornerstone in whom you look to to uphold
0: God's kingdom, Temple and God's dwelling, verse forty-four says, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is language that echoes from Daniel, and Daniel says of a stone that comes and shatters all of these, all of these statues that are supposed to represent nations and kingdoms. And it is reminiscent of what Psalm do I love, or Psalms I love to read all the time, Psalm one and two. What happens to the wicked? If I told you to memorize Psalm 1, I hope you did. What happens to the wicked? They get crushed, and they get blown away. They are like these broken pieces, they're like chaff, and if you reject Jesus Christ as the Jews of Jesus' day was, the kingdom is being taken, and now instead of being the thing to which you look at, it now becomes
1: the thing of your demise. It will crush you, brethren. And notice, they get it loud and clear.
0: Brethren, this is not some parable talking about a future time or some distant people or just some people in general or whatever. This is directed towards Jesus' audience in His own day. Because what does verse 45 say here? When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard His
1: parables... The two we just heard, they perceived he was speaking about them. Them, brethren. The charge is being laid at their feet. There's a reckoning that is now here.
0: And there's a final plea. Because what could they do? Has the judgment
1: come? Not yet. It's there, it's near. The last parable will show us it is near, but has it come? It is not. It has not come yet. So forty-five, they should
0: have perceived and done what? They should have done what they should have done in the first. At the end of the first parable, they should have saw it and changed their minds and believed, brethren. The hope was held out. The held out for them. There is a final plea in Jesus telling them, "Listen, the kingdom's going to be taken from you. It's coming real soon." And if you don't repent, the stone's going to crush you. You will be judged, and it will be given to somebody else.
1: Brethren, here's the foolishness again of unbelief of what it does to you. 46. And although they were seeking to arrest him.
0: Brethren, they just can't see it. They can't see.
1: Eyes in their eyes head and ears to hear, and they can't see or hear it.
0: Brethren, I'll tell you
1: what, as you deal with somebody in unbelief, that is exactly what you'll experience. The charge could be laid at their feet. The time to plead with them to say, listen, the judgment is close. What happens when a man dies? Is it appointed for man
0: to die once and then comes what? the judgment. Brethren, judgment is imminent for
1: every single one of us. It is at your feet. The axe is laid at the root of your tree. And brethren, if you do not repent in a hurry, it'll fall upon you. And notice that they respond. Anger and unbelief and malice towards the Son of God
0: and they sought to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they held him to be a
1: prophet. Brethren, the charge just went up tenfold. Not only did they reject John the Baptist,
0: but they have, in fact, rejected the son, and he has prophesied of them killing him. And they just seek the more to arrest him. So Jesus is going to end with this final parable, brethren. And this is, going to be, this is going to be an escalation. It is going to be a, a finality and totality to what He is building on in this section. And as I said before, this is the final plea to Jerusalem to repent before their judgment comes. So Matthew 22, beginning in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered in all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer
1: darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Brethren, Jesus ends with a somber reality.
0: Somber reality for us to consider. Now here we have the escalation of these parables. Not only in the rejection of John the Baptist and in Jesus Christ himself, they have rejected the offer to come into this kingdom and enjoy its fruits because they lack fruit. And in fact, they have taken God's servants and killed them. So notice, again, the kingdom of heaven is being compared here. The same thing that he says before, the kingdom of God, same thing. And he describes it here as a king who gives this wedding feast, and these servants go out and they invite people to the wedding feast, but he says they would not come. So he sends them out again saying, hey, come, come, come. Tell all those who are invited, tell them to come. He says, see, I've prepared my dinner. All all these things he's prepared for them. All of it is ready. He just tells them to come. What? To enjoy it. To come in and to enjoy it. But it says this. They paid no attention and went off. And they go off and think about this. Think about this, brethren. They go off and do menial tasks
1: of everyday life because they treat the call as worthless. Brethren, it's absolutely worthless to come in to this kingdom, one in which all of it has been
0: prepared for you already. All you must do is bear the fruit of repentance and come in and be invited and to accept the invitation. And it says that they paid no attention and they go off One to attend to his farm, another to his business, as if it doesn't matter, but still others who seize his servants and treat them shamefully and kill them. Brother, notice how this is functioning to an even greater extent. John the Baptist,
1: Jesus Christ, and now these servants, these ones who are going to go out to these people,
0: He's going to go out to Jerusalem. Because what does Jesus tell the disciples in Matthew? He says, before you even get to all of uh, Jerusalem and Judea, you will not make it all the way out there until I come till he comes back in judgment, that you won't even be able to get out to all these places. So these disciples are going out, these servants are going out, and they are welcoming in people because they've ignored the first call. And so now the servants are going out and going, come, it's ready, it's ready, it's right here. The kingdom is right here and it's ready. Come in and enter. And instead of receiving it, they do what, what Jesus has been predicting of them the whole time in these parables They seize these servants, they treat them shamefully, and they kill them. Brethren, you see this right at the beginning of Acts. Right at the beginning of Acts, as they begin to go out and proclaim this gospel, and they receive persecution, and even some of their own are killed.
1: And they seize his servants, and they kill him. And then this is what it says, the king was angry. And now what does he do? Brethren, here comes the looming judgment. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Brother, no doubt, as you continue to read in Matthew 23, when
0: Jesus pronounces all the woes upon Jerusalem, and in Matthew 24, you hear what Jesus has to say. The end of Matthew 23, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, think about this, brethren. This final plea ending in this crescendo. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then his disciples, as they walk out and they leave the temple for the last time, they ask, or they tell Jesus, as they're pointing to the temple and these beautiful stones and, these, and this building, and he answers them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left there here, excuse me, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Brethren, the king was angry and he did send his troops in to destroy and mur- those murders and burn that city. And Jesus said, and it happened. Brethren, Jesus has escalated in these parables this final plea to Jerusalem to repent to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and ultimately of recognizing Jesus Christ and His kingdom and to be welcome into it. And they
1: refuse. And so they're destroyed. When their judgment was
0: imminent, it was at the doorstep. The final plea was made and they didn't heed
1: it. And you better believe judgment came upon them.
0: You read Matthew 24 and you hear the horrors of that judgment. Brethren, that judgment came upon him. You go read Josephus. You go read the accounts of that judgment upon Jerusalem in AD 70. And you tell me how gruesome and how brutal and how quick and how violent that judgment was. Brethren, that judgment consumed Jerusalem and it consumed Israel for them to be no more. More. Brethren, do you know why there is no such thing now as Israel as a nation state as we would have known it in the past? That temple and that dwelling place and that people have been made desolate. God removed his blessing from them. God judged them with such severity that they will never, brethren, hear me on this, they will never recoup. But brethren, the warning comes to us too. If you reject Jesus Christ, know that death stands at your door and you will not recoup on the day. It will come upon you swiftly and it will come upon you speedily and you will not escape that judgment. Here's what he says. Listen, he says to these servants then, okay, the w- that's been done. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So, where does he tell them to go? To the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants, they went out to the roads, gathered all in whom they found, both bad and good. And listen,
1: brethren, what is the result? The wedding hall was filled with guests. But even in our own
0: age, brethren, of this gospel age, we Better not fall prey to Jerusalem's own unbelief and their own certainty and their own background to think that they will escape the fiery judgment. Because notice that this king comes in and looks at these guests and he finds there are at least one man who does not have a wedding garment.
1: And what does he say to him? Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man's speechless. He doesn't know. Brethren, the idea is this. As the man was
0: called, we don't want to get too deep in this wedding garment. Is this righteousness? Is it this or is that? Brethren, he just simply didn't have it. He was lacking something that was necessary to enter in. And brethren, just because you come in, if you lack the
1: thing that is necessary to come in, you will be removed. The warning comes to us still unlike israel where many are going to be called but few are going to be chosen
0: where there's going to be a wedding hall filled with guests there are still a warning laid out for this people us here that if we enter in and we lack the thing by which we come in repentance unto jesus christ we will be removed and notice it's the same judgment bind him hand and foot
1: and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brethren,
0: this is Christ's final plea in these parables, but the plea still rings true for us. Did Christ not judge Jerusalem? He most certainly did. Brethren, that is good news actually for us, because that means Jesus Christ vindicates his name. His name will not be run through the mud. His name will not be questioned. His authority will not be challenged. His power and His words will not be brought into question any longer. He will come and set it right. But brother, the plea still comes to every single one who would come in. Do not come in without repentance and a recognition of Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, or you too will be removed. Not presume upon ourselves the name Christian, and that is what gets us by. Brethren, it was nothing other than
1: repentance and a trusting in the chief cornerstone. Let's pray.